Here are our happiness highlights from the final chapter of Daniel Hebron's Happiness, a very short introduction. Chapter 8, A Good Life. What makes for a good life? To put the pursuit of happiness in its proper context, we need some notion of what a good life looks like. One of the more noteworthy features of a good life is that, like a good play or a pleasant visit from the in-laws, it eventually draws to a conclusion. You die. You die, Monia. This is probably not something you're looking forward to, but neither is it such a terrible thing. If the old never died, the young would soon find things pretty crowded. And get really tired of hearing the same old stories over and over again. Let's say that a good life is a life you could reasonably affirm. Put another way, a good life is a life that you could justifiably be satisfied with. There may be other reasonable ways to think about good lives serving different purposes. When setting goals for oneself or one's government, it may make sense to focus on a more demanding notion, say, justified aspiration. There seemed to be two fundamental parts to a good life, whether your life is good for you and whether the way you lead it is good, well-being and virtue. Your life needs to be a good thing for you to have had for this. It may suffice if your life is worth living for you, better than having not lived, but this seems a bit weak. So let's say to count as a genuine good for you, your life has to be well worth living for you. Choosing and living well isn't just a moral thing. It's a, broadly a matter of living sensibly and wisely. This might include being prudent in your personal affairs, maintaining your dignity, getting the most out of life, and so forth. If you live very well, we might say you lived admirably. In thinking about good lives, it can be helpful to apply the eulogy test. Imagine you're delivering the eulogy for a person. Make it a dry run to an empty room so you don't have to worry about offending anyone. Would you say that you or he had a good life? People do get away with being horrible persons, but we deem good lives in the case of people like Lincoln and Churchill and King and Mandela, all of whom lacked particularly enviable lives, and yet they're the sorts of people we point to as paradigms of good lives. The prospects for a good life, there's a happy moral to this account. A good life is not hard to get. The well-being side of the equation, after all, is very undemanding. Even the average Charlie Brown, for whom things rarely go well, can still have a life well worth living. Most of the time, life is awash in small pleasures. Almost every hour brings pleasant smells, pleasant, pleasing sights and sounds, agreeable sensations, amusing thoughts. This is not always so obvious because we're so used to it and because we're so wired to respond more strongly to the bad things. This is called negativity bias. Yes, there are times when the suffering overwhelmingly trumps the pleasures. Indeed, when no consciousness at all might be preferable. For some periods, life may be such that it genuinely wouldn't be worth living, if that's, the if that's all the future could bring. Yet no one reaches old age and lies on his deathbed thinking, if only I had killed myself when I was 17. We're far more likely to undermine our lives by acting badly than by being unhappy or unsuccessful. The most important element of a good life is wholly in your control. It is your choice whether to act well. For the most part, whether you have a good life is up to you. You may or may not find happiness, but you can handle life's slings and arrows with goodness, dignity, and grace. 
Maybe many people fail to recognize how good their lives are. However modest your achievements, you can take satisfaction in knowing that you handled your responsibilities, knew something of love, and took in a bit of Earth's and humankind's splendor. Even the most ordinary life is a pretty extraordinary thing. I would much prefer that my children go on to lead lives like the anonymous homemaker who shepherded her family over the decades with discernment, sensitivity, wisdom, patience, and a sharp wit, than that they lead the extraordinary lives of a Virginia Woolf, a Wittgenstein, a Van Gogh, or a Hemingway. Those of us observing from a safe distance should be glad of the great men and women whose fruits we enjoy, but that doesn't mean we should want to live like them. Today, when so many forces try to get us absorbed in trivia, it is easy to devote far too many of one's waking hours to things that aren't worthwhile or important. I once spent some time with a deeply unhappy family, a fractured family who displayed all the signs of a materialistic lifestyle. Work was about making as much money as possible. That money was spent on fancy cars and other markers of status. Shopping was one of their main leisure activities, with one young woman describing herself as a shopping addict. Most of the family seemed lost, talking about anything they regarded as very important or having any real substance. Deep or meaningful conversation was apparently not a regular feature of their lives. They seemed isolated from one another, locked in their own private worlds, yet they were nice, likable people whose core values seemed perfectly healthy and little different from anyone else's. They cared deeply about their family and other relationships, and there's little doubt that they valued f familiar virtues like honesty, fairness, kindness, and loyalty. They treasured memories of personal achievements, shared experiences, and other meaningful episodes in their lives. Most likely, they were simply pursuing the kinds of goals that their culture validated and made readily available to them. Perhaps it never occurred to them that there were viable, honorable alternatives to the single-minded pursuit of money, stuff, and status. And so they pursued a way of life that served their appetites but undermined the things they actually cared about. The experience left me disheartened to be part of a culture that lets people down so profoundly, urging us to put our lives so thoroughly at odds with our own values. Materialism is one threat to connection. Perpetual distraction is another. As I write, we're just a decade or two into a new era of potentially non-stop artificial stimulation. Cell phones, texting, handheld video games, Home gaming consoles, iPads, iPods, iPhones, Facebook, Twitter, the Internet, and probably a bunch of other stuff I'm forgetting. I enjoy using many of these technologies, which are popular for a reason. Sometimes they enhance our relationships, for instance, helping us keep in touch with distant friends and relatives. But they also serve less rewarding ends and can be more than a little addictive. Having an iPhone at your disposal is like hanging a sack of donuts and chocolates around your neck. The modern-day lotus eater, insensible to the call of reality. At the limit, no reflection, no peace, and no genuinely human interactions. Soon you may pretty much forget how to talk, as many of us already have. This becomes starkly apparent when you visit a place where the art of conversation still thrives, like a working-class English pub. No one in their right mind would volunteer to spend... 80 hours a week toiling at an unfulfilling job in a semi-abusive environment unless they were either very desperate or very well paid. Recall that in the U.S., household incomes above 75000 seem on average to have zero effect on happiness. 
Every college major, yes, even philosophy, tend to get decent paying jobs, putting their income above the threshold of minimal returns happiness-wise. Social workers are pretty close to the threshold where money starts to have a significant impact on happiness. Shout out to my sister. All this is by way of saying it is foolish to let the pursuit of wealth, status, and stuff get in the way of a fulfilling, rewarding work life. If the pursuit of ambitious material goals seem, uh, seem seriously to compromise your ability to connect with people and things that matter, you've likely made a big mistake. So, relax. Chill. Slow down, reflect, recharge, or at least notice things. When we used to do nothing, we didn't just do nothing alone. We very often did nothing together. Frank Bruni had a, a very telling piece in the New York Times the other day about the family time that he and his extended relations regularly set aside in August. How important it is not to just squeeze in quality time to make, but to make time. This is surely one of the signal ingredients of happiness in our time. Life is in some ways shorter and more compressed when you don't relax enough. We are on the treadmill of a work existence. Slowing down the pace is one kind of relaxing. Another, though, is not blowing things out of proportion, not being needy, not dwelling on the negatives, shrugging off or laughing off setbacks. Home purchases pose special risks because we're vulnerable to focusing illusions that make us exaggerate the importance of the differences between housing options. As psychologist Daniel Kahneman puts it, nothing in life is as important as you think it is when you're thinking about it. In consequence, we put a lot of stock in trifling features like curb appeal, forgetting that we won't be spending much time sitting on the curb, admiring our mini-mansions, mini-splendid leaky gables. Simply advising people to be moral seems too abstract to be very helpful. Let me frame the point, then, the way my great-grandmother Zeta Tatur put it, as described in one of my father's essays, make it come out even. This is the number one rule for living well. And here's another way to think about it. Call it the conversation test. Imagine sitting down with all those whose lives you've affected, including your children and grandchildren, and all those impacted by your lifestyle decisions. Would you be able to look them in the eye and honestly say that you treated them well enough and with respect, that you were justified in the way you lived? You need not have an affirmative answer in every case. Even the best of us fail to measure up at times, but you're not likely to feel you've made it come out even if you consistently fail the test. I suspect such questions will haunt many of my generation in coming decades once the toll of today's wasteful habits has become all too apparent. Conclusion. Summing up. Engage yourself with meaningful activities that interest you, but don't overdo it and forget to relax. Make time for the people you love. Keep a lid on your debts and make it come out even. Avoid careers that will put you in bad company. Just being alive, having a wonderful family, good friends, watching the sunrise morning after morning, that's what makes me feel good, said Sergeant Michael A. D. Raimondo in a letter home from Iraq shortly before being killed in action. He said, I think people take their lives for granted. Some just 
haven't hit that part of their lives where they stop and say, I am such a lucky person to have the life I have. Talk to you later.